Thank you. Good seeing everyone this morning and uh, grateful if you're visiting with us for the first time or uh, watching online for the first time. And let me just uh, join with Josh and uh, giving you an official word of welcome and hope that you will take the time to text FL Respond uh, to uh, the number that is provided uh, for you. And uh, we just look forward to having a conversation with you about what it means to be a follower of Christ, what it means as a follower of Christ to be a part of this uh, church family. But we hope that you will afford us that uh, that conversation and uh, we can follow up with you immediately. I want us to open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel chapter 16 and verse 24. Really kind of setting the stage as we move into the Easter season, Palm Sunday next week. I just want to do a couple of messages leading up to that. And then after, uh, after Easter, when we come back, we will start our series through the book of Romans and uh, certainly looking forward to that. But this morning, I want to call our attention to Matthew chapter 16 and this one verse, verse 24. And let me frame this in, in, in the context of a question asking you how great is your desire uh, to be a follower of, of Christ? How strong is that desire? Is that desire strong enough that the only thing you hunger and thirst for is the truth of God's Word? Is it a hunger that is strong enough that when that truth is revealed, when it is discovered, that you are willing to embrace it and, and to apply it to your life on a daily basis? I think it's a fair question in light of the attitude of the religious establishment of the day of, of Jesus. If you were to look over in Mark's gospel, in chapter 12, listen to what these religious leaders said to Jesus as they are trying to stump him, as they are trying to trip him up as they always do. I want you to listen to how they preface their question and the, the assertions that they make regarding Jesus and who he is. They came and said to him, teacher, we know, all right? That is, we have an understanding. We, we know that you are truthful and do not care what anyone thinks, for you are not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. Those were his enemies. His clash, you know, always was with the religious establishment in that day and time. But their declaration is, is that we know. We know that you are truthful. We know that you proclaim, that you teach the way of God in truth. They knew it. But they maligned him. They rejected him. They killed him. They crucified him. Even in the light of everything they knew about him. So when we talk about being a follower of, of Jesus Christ, being his disciple, is it something that we truly desire? Or would it be more honest to say that I better fit in with, uh, I think I fit better with the religious establishment. I just want a religion that, that is comfortable. I want a religion that, that is satisfied by observations on certain days of the year. And so how, how much do you truly desire to be a follower of Christ and all the implications that go with that? 
One of the things I so appreciate about Jesus is his straightforwardness. As we saw the religious leaders even acknowledge, we know you don't, we know you don't show favoritism. You don't, you don't measure your words and change your message depending upon the audience. You just, you just tell the truth. And as he, is, as he is talking to these disciples and understanding what is going to happen in, in a very short time, what's going to happen in, a, in just a matter of weeks when he is put to death, he knows that all of their beliefs that they have right now, all of their hopes, beliefs, aspirations, everything that they understand about him, what they think they understand about him in being his follower, all of that is going to be nailed to a tree in a few weeks. Then, then where are you? Because it's going to change everything and especially your understanding of what it means to be my, my follower. So in a very clear and succinct way, if you have ever been curious, if you're here this morning and you're just searching, and really what does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Whatever circumstances have brought you to this place. And you've heard about the Christian faith. You've heard about the gospel. You really don't know all the implications of this. When we talk about being a follower of Christ, you really don't, you really don't understand all the implications of that, what is involved. Then today's message is perfect for you. Because in this one verse, Jesus captures all the elements of what it means to be his disciple, what it means to be a follower of him. He said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. A very clear depiction of what it is to be a follower of Christ. Four things that I will pull out of this, out of this passage that I, that I want to highlight that I think are necessary. If, I, if my desire is, is truly to know the truth of the gospel, if my desire is truly to be a follower of Christ and for that to be played out in my life, what is necessary? Well, Jesus says it begins with, with contemplation, reflection. If anyone wants to come after me, in other words, this is a determination that, that you're going to have to make. This is a choice that you're going to have to make in your life regarding your, your relationship with me. This, this decision will have consequences. This decision has weight. It has substance to it. Because when you choose to follow me, life will be transformed. Life will never be what you once knew it to be. In fact, Jesus would say to those that would perhaps be considering being his disciple, he says, listen, I want you to know that men, men will hate you. They will despise you. They will deliver you up, scourge you for my namesake. Elsewhere, he would say, for I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So Jesus is very forthright. I want you to know what you're getting into. I want you to know the costs that are involved. I want you to know what it's going to be like to stand apart from, from the culture when the masses just want you to be just like them. To stand apart and be something different, to represent me, it's not something to be entered into lightly. It's going to re require a choice. You can't know the truth and just stand there at the intersection. 
Like Joshua made his great declaration to those that would be the people of God, choose you this day whom you would serve. We can't just say, well, I'm going to put it off. I'm going to wait. To do nothing is to do something. As a young man, 21 years old, coming to faith in Christ, I spent years searching, contemplating, reflecting. I didn't know much about the Christian faith, but I knew just enough to know that it was going to cost me something. And am I truly willing to give up what it's going to cost me to become this follower of Jesus Christ? Because I knew that it was going to bring about a cataclysmic change in my life. And listen, church, what we need to recognize is that there is a big difference between being a member of the church and being a follower of Christ. Do you know it's possible to be a member of this church or any church and not be a follower of Jesus Christ? I mean, there's, there's no way to really tell. I mean, all, all we do, when you, when you inquire about membership, we're going to ask you about your relationship with, with Christ. And if you confess Christ, oh, yes, I've committed my life to Christ, to following after him. Those are words that are easy to say. Those are words that will get you church membership. But church membership does not necessarily mean that, that you're a follower of Christ. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, you should desire to be a part of a, of a church family, a part of a local body of believers embracing all the, all the messiness and all the responsibilities that, that go with that. But it's a decision and a determination that, that every individual has to make because as James said in James chapter 1 in, in verse 8, the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And so following me, Jesus, it's going to mean something. So you have to contemplate whether or not this is a decision you're going to make. The second thing he, he says is necessary is not just contemplation, but also renunciation. You see it here? He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. It's the language of renouncement, putting away selfish desires and, and ambitions, dying to self. Now, you have to see the context of this. You have to go back to verse 21. Jesus has said in verse 21 that it is necessary for him, for the Son of Man, to go to Jerusalem and to suffer and to die. And what does Peter say? Peter, of course, looking at it from the human perspective, says, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. But verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on God's purposes, but, but man." And so this idea of, of renouncement, this idea of denying oneself, is setting our minds on heavenly things instead of earthly things. It means a death to self. Self-denial means putting away those things that, that are intuitive. When, when things get hard, when things become challenging in life, when things aren't going according to our wishes and our desires and our preferences, the human mind tries to go to a place of a path of least resistance. But you know that it's in these times of, of self-denial that we grow the most. It's in these times of, of hardship and challenge, that's when the work begins. 
In talking to student athletes, that's one of the things you point out. When you, when you start a training session, a lifting session or something, you're really not working as long as it's easy. That's not work. But it's when, it's when you come to that place, when all of a sudden you're getting resistance, when this is hard, when this is challenging, when the brain says, hey, listen, relax, pull back. This hurts too much. That's when the work begins. That's when the growth begins. That's when maturity begins. Same way in the life of faith, when our human intuition, our, 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 our nature is to pull back from those when things aren't going the way we like them. So it is persevering, enduring, getting to the other side. Because listen, maturity and growth, everything we want is on the other side of hardship. It never comes in times of, of ease, but intuitively when hardship comes, our brain will seek to find that path of least resistance. Self-denial means getting rid of some things. It means putting away things that are not conducive to our growth and maturity in faith. That's why the writer of Hebrews would say, put aside every sin and encumbrance. We understand that, that sin is, is a detriment to our growth and maturity in, in Christ. And that's why Paul would use the language of taking off and putting on as we grow and mature in our faith and the likeness of Christ. We realize that, that there are things that we have been holding to, sinful things that, that are detrimental to our relationship with Christ. So we take off those garments and we put on Christ's likeness. But there's other things the writer of Hebrews said, encumbrances that are not necessarily sin, they're just not conducive to growth. There's all kinds of encumbrances that, that we allow to attach themselves to our lives. They are not evil in themselves, they're just not conducive to growth. Some things, you know, this is spring, springtime, good time for for, for a big house cleaning, isn't it? You know, in springtime, you always do a spring cleaning. And in spring cleaning, the idea is you take everything out of the house and you, man, you clean it up, make it pristine. Then you, then you bring things back in, throw some things out, but you bring, then you make choices and decisions as to what you bring back in. And the Word of God challenges us to be a people of spring cleanings to evaluate what needs to be in the Lord's house? What needs to be in my life and what doesn't? The famous artist Whistler told the story of a good friend that had brought, that had purchased a, a, very, a, very, a very unique piece of, of art, very expensive work of art, and asked his friend, the artist Whistler, to come and, and help him make a decision as to where it should be placed in his home. When Whistler arrived, the man described his, his circumstances, his dilemma, and said, you know, I've, I've tried putting it in this room, it just doesn't go. I've tried putting it in this room, and, and it just doesn't work. I put it over here, and it doesn't work. Whistler said, hey, wait a minute, you've got it all wrong. He said, when you've got a piece of artwork that is this exquisite, that is, that is a masterpiece, that is this unique, he said, when you have something of this quality, he said, the approach is you have to make this the centerpiece of the home. Then everything else is arranged in relationship to this. It's the same thing in our relationship with Christ. 
too often we try to we try to decide where is he going to fit into my life we'll try to squeeze him into this room we'll try to squeeze him into this room when in fact the approach that is to be taken is is when we commit our lives to following Christ he becomes the centerpiece of our home and everything else is arranged accordingly And so it's a life of decisions and, and choices. What is it that I, must, that I must put away that hinders my growth, my maturity, my understanding in Christ? There's a third thing that's highlighted in this verse as well that is necessary in our following of Christ, if that is our desire, not just contemplation and renunciation, but also dedication. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. The language of dedication, commitment. Jesus in his preaching and his teaching utilized two words, two symbols for the life of faith that he was calling people to. It was a yoke and a cross. The yoke was a symbol of, of toil symbol of, of labor. The cross is a symbol of, of death. And so to be my follower, you must have not only a willingness to die to self, to set aside your selfish desires, your ambitions, your desire now is to serve, is to live for Christ alone, to bring honor and glory to him, but also to wear the yoke of labor and toil to not just receive the gift of salvation that the cross brings forth, but also a people that are willing to go out and to labor in the field. The field is wide unto harvest, but the laborers are few. I need individuals that will put on the yoke and they will bear the responsibility of what it is to be my, my follower. The cross is not a piece of jewelry to be worn around the neck. It's not a piece of balsa wood to, uh, carry around in the pocket and show whenever you pull out change. It's something that is borne out in our daily lives and our approach to life and what others see in us as we labor for Christ. I know I've told you the story before. It's one of my favorite stories. I heard it at a conference, LaVon Brown, a retired pastor, longtime pastor in Norman, Oklahoma, tells the story of traveling back from Glorietta for family week with his family coming back to, to Norman. And in that hours long trip, he said it would always inevitably happen that, that the boys would, that Nathan and Scott, his two boys would, would get into an argument and a fight. But he said this one particular trip, they're about, they're hours into their trip back to Norman from Glorietta when all of a sudden the youngest one cries out, give me my cross and my pillow. He said, I knew immediately what had happened. The older boy had, had, had gotten to an argument and wrestling and the older son had taken from the younger son his pillow. We always threw a couple of pillows in the back seat whenever we traveled for the boys to have to sleep. And he said, so the older boy had taken his pillow from him. But he said he had also taken his little cross that he had made during craft time at, at Glorietta. Thus the statement, give me my cross and my pillow. And too often as Western Christians in our culture, I fear that that, that is our cry as well. Give me the cross and my pillow. Give me all the benefits that the cross bears, uh, but I, I really don't want the burdens of responsibility. 
Give me eternal life, but don't make me walk the straight and narrow path here. And so it's a determination that has to be made of whether I'm not, whether or not I'm going to be not just someone who receives the benefits, but am I going to be a laborer? Am I going to be the kind of follower of Christ that, that is recognized by, by both this yoke and a cross? We're called to be workers. We're called to be, to be laborers in the field. When Jimmy Carter was president, he said, I can get up at nine and I can be rested. Or I can get up at six and I can be president of the United States. And church, listen, that has to be our philosophy in the life of faith and our understanding of the life of faith. I can get up and get dressed when it's convenient and go to church on holidays and when, and when there's nothing else available on my calendar and I can be an average church member. Or I can get up every day when my feet hit the ground and pick up my cross and all the burdens that, that it represents and the responsibilities that it represents. I can get up every day, pick up my cross and bear the yoke and I can be a follower of Christ. Your choice, your decision has eternal consequences. There's a final thing that is necessary to be a follower of Christ, not just contemplation and renunciation, and dedication, but also imitation. Did you see how, how Jesus ended this? He said, and follow me. And follow me. Paul would say, Paul would say to the church at Philippi and the church at Thessalonica, both be imitators of me. We all look to role models, don't we? Whether it's academics, sports, music, whatever, everybody has a role model that, that they look to. Jesus says, follow me. Paul would dare to say, be an imitator of me to the church at Philippi, the things you've heard from me, that you've seen in me. Be imitators of those things. Practice those things. Well, how do we imitate Christ in a way that, that is a role model for others to see and and to make curious about, about the life of faith. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us a great deal about the personality of Jesus, what his personality was, was like. And I think it was probably as the Holy Spirit was inspiring these biblical writers that that was probably an intentional. Because we, we have a big enough problem with trying to fashion, you know, it, 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 we, we have a big enough problem with trying to fashion God into our likeness anyway, trying to make him something like me. Uh, each one of us do that. We try to fashion our own God. And because we don't really have a description of the personality of Jesus, most people, I think, in their mind, sadly, have, have portrayed Jesus in their mind. They have an image of, of Jesus as being uh, some kind of mamby-pamby, milk-toast, uh, lay-over-and-play-dead type of, of mentality. That he's uh, some kind of, of, of weakness. Walks around, you know, like a martyr, all hangdog. I just don't see that in the Gospels. I mean, children were drawn to him. Crowds were drawn to him. So there, there had to be something infectious about, about his personality. 
But, but follow me. How do, we, how do we imitate Jesus? It's important that we do it well. That's one of the reasons, listen, one of the worst about this, I've never really understood pastors, ministers of the gospel who get into this little moany attitude they have about uh, always being under a magnifying glass. You know, start moaning about hard, how hard it is to be a minister, you know, and just always in the fishbowl, everybody's looking. Well, first of all, I think get over yourself. You know, not, not everybody's looking at you. It's kind of like when you're in, thir- in your 30s, you worry about what everybody thinks about you. When you get in your 40s, you don't care what people think about you. And then when you get to your 50s, you realize they weren't even thinking about you at all. But I've never understood these ministers who are so whiny about the ministry and oh, how hard it is. You know, just living in that fishbowl, everybody. My, my second thought is, what are you hiding? What is it you don't want people to see in your home life? Because as ministers of the gospel, we need to be role models. It's 24-7, not just for ministers, but, but for you. There's never a time when you take Christ off because the world is watching. And they need to see role models of a healthy faith, a robust faith that informs the kind of person you are, the kind of husband you are, spouse you are, uh, the, the kind of parent that you are. Because listen, you know what the world thinks about you? And, I, and I'm telling you this from my own experience, for someone who didn't grow up in church. Without that kind of robust witness of a healthy, vibrant faith and commitment to Christ in every facet of our lives out there for the world to think, you know what the world thinks about the church? They think you're just, just a, bunch of, a bunch of religious zealots. They think you sit in here every Sunday with a self-righteous attitude and they just think that you're a religious right-wing zealot. And it's a stereotype that we need to overcome. And it's overcome whenever we imitate Jesus and follow him and live as he lived. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, because we don't know a great deal about the personality of Jesus and it's not about trying to imitate his personality. When I, when I read the Gospels, and it's uncanny how, the, how this gets easier the older you get, but when I read the Gospels, what I see Jesus doing on his journey to the cross, his three-year life and his ministry to the cross, is he recognized little people. He recognized and engaged with people that couldn't help him. That could never offer anything to him in return. The outcast, the ones that society had marginalized, those that were powerless, those that had no voice whatsoever, the disenfranchised, that's who Jesus engaged with. Those who could do nothing for him. And the quality and the character of a man's faith is to be revealed in how he treats the least of these. How you treat the least of these is how you treat me. If you follow Jesus according to that model, you will have done well. 
In the New Testament, the word that is used for disciple, it simply means learner or a student. You embrace the journey of faith, you decide to follow Jesus, you're, you're a learner, you're a student, you're born a child, spiritual infant, but you begin the process of learning and growing and maturing. The Latin word is a little different, and I, and I actually like the Latin word for disciple a little bit better because the Latin word for disciple and discipleship means one who learns by doing. I like that. One who learns by doing, not learning so I can pass a test, not so I can know more than you, but someone who learns by doing. Someone who is active, someone who is engaged, someone who is applying their faith. And when I first read that some, some decades ago about the Latin word being learning by doing, I thought that's it. That's the problem of the church in the West. Because we're trying to learn not by doing, but learning by sitting. Sitting in church, listening to a sermon, learn by sitting. Go to Sunday school, learning by sitting. Oh, I got my favorite podcast, learning by sitting. I've got this great Bible study I go to during the week, learning by sitting. And the church in America today is suffering from what I call an ingrown shirt tail. <laughs> A lot of sitting. Learning by sitting. But not learning by doing. The story is told is when George Washington was leading the revolutionary cause, a man came to him and said, General, I want you to know that I'm a sympathizer. Washington commended him and said, under what regiment and command do you serve? And he said, oh, I'm a, I'm a civilian. He said, young man, if you're really a sympathizer, enlist. Pick up a gun and fight. That's the same call in the life of faith. We are soldiers. We are an army for Christ. To pick up the sword of God's word and to go and, and live it out in the world. A people who go. You see, we emerge from that world. We can't sit in here self-righteously and be satisfied because we're in here. You and I all came from out there. We are them, except for God's grace and mercy. We are them, and not far removed from them, frankly. And if we're going to, to truly be followers of Christ, a distinctive people, we have to want more than what we want right now. We have to want more than just a comfortable, easy religion that is satisfied with having come here. To truly be a follower of Christ, we must want more than we want right now. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to stir within us, challenging us, stretching us, never allowing us Lord, to be satisfied with what we know, with what we have done, with what has been accomplished. But that, Father, we would embrace fully this idea and this 
teaching that we are the body of Christ in the world. We are the church in the world. Father, never let us be content with just having walked through these doors and sat on a soft pew. But Father, might this be a time and might it have been a time where we feel trained and equipped, motivated, inspired to go out into this world and to reflect the likeness of Christ. That the world might know that we follow a risen Savior that impacts every facet of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.